My ancestor, the first Baron Munchausen, often flew when he travelled, even though he lived long before the invention of the aeroplane. He was once carried by a huge eagle across the Atlantic, up the entire length of the Americas, from Tierra del Fuego to the Arctic, and was back in Europe in less than two days. Yet I doubt he ever enjoyed such a delightful flight as mine from the Scottish Highlands to the south of England. The sixteen swans who powered my Signian chariot made excellent progress through the night, and by seven in the morning little more than sixty miles lay between us and the English Channel. The swans, however, were exhausted, having borne for many hours both my weight and that of the tree on which I sat. To the east sprawled the city of London. I realised that, flying at a height of about a thousand feet, we were in danger of being caught up in the air traffic above Heathrow. Just as this thought occurred to me, an enormous passenger jet loomed in front of us, so close that I could see the startled faces of the crew in the cockpit. I swiftly averted disaster by severing the ropes that bound the swans to the tree. The swans scattered and managed to avoid the jet, and the tree and I plummeted towards the ground. I saw a small wood below me change my position so that I was hanging by my hands from the tree's trunk, and hurled it like a javelin so that it landed upright among the other trees, immediately securing itself by the roots as if it had been there for years. Meanwhile, spreading my arms and legs, I used my coat of swan feathers to slow my descent, gliding gracefully until I alighted. I touched down on an expanse of lawn entirely surrounded by beautifully kept herbaceous borders and ancient stone walls. Although bright, the day was cold. A small but familiar figure in a blue overcoat, gloves and a hat approached me across the lawn. I realised that I had landed within the bounds of Windsor Castle and was in the presence of Her Majesty the Queen. I bowed before her and apologised for having dropped in so unexpectedly, no doubt breaching every aspect of royal protocol, to say nothing of the security arrangements. She seemed not in the least bit bothered. "'Good morning,' she said. "'Have you come far?' Uh, "'From the north of Scotland, Your Majesty,' I explained. "'Yesterday I was a guest of the Countess of Shandwick.' "'Oh, yes. Yes, I know her slightly. Such a charming part of the country. And you are?' Baron Munchausen at your service, ma'am. Are you perhaps related, she asked, to the renowned traveller and adventurer of the same name? I assured her that I was a direct descendant of the first baron. Oh, how interesting, she said. I believe my great-great-grandmother's grandfather, King George III, met your ancestor when he was taking the waters at Cheltenham. In fact, I recall that they got on terribly well. The king adored the baron's absurd stories, Apparently he thought they were all true, but by then, of course, the poor king was completely potty. I forbore to argue with Her Majesty regarding the veracity of my ancestors' anecdotes. We spent a pleasant quarter of an hour inspecting the borders. She was a great authority on the plants, and said she often enjoyed an hour of solitude in the garden before anybody else was up. Then she continued. Now, 
I'm afraid your unorthodox arrival will cause all kinds of difficulties if you try to leave by one of the usual exits. In fact, I'm rather surprised that the guards haven't already come to overpower you. Not that I doubt it myself, but do you have any papers to prove that you really are who you say you are? Uh, no, ma'am. I stand before you in only my feathers, I said. And very fetching they are, she said. But I fear they will not save you from being arrested. You'd better come with me. She led me from the garden through a discreet wooden door into a private sitting-room. She had, she said, a special bag, which she kept handy for just such eventualities. From a small red handbag, she produced an unused British passport and a tiny silver camera. She took my photograph, rang a bell, and when an equerry entered, handed him camera and passport, and gave instructions that the latter should be prepared and authorised in my name without delay. After the man had withdrawn, I had the temerity to ask if this was strictly legal. She gave a merry laugh, and said that if she could not personally issue a passport, in which it was stated that Her Britannic Majesty requests and requires, etc., to whomever she wished, then who could? She'd like to meet the Prime Minister who tried to stop her, she added mischievously. There was a coffee-making machine in the room, and she kindly made me a double espresso while we waited for the passport. She regretted that she never carried any money, or she would have slipped me a hundred-pound note. The equerry returned with the precious document. "'And where are you off to next?' Her Majesty asked. I said I had a notion to visit Australia, as I'd never been there. "'Oh, I'm very fond of Australia, although I suspect I will not go there again myself,' she said. "'But it is very hot. Do wear a hat. Oh, and you'd better take this, too.' She rummaged about in a drawer and extracted a bottle of Factor 90 sun cream. I said I had not known such a high factor cream existed. By special appointment, she said. You can't get it in the shops. You only need a tiny amount, but it is very effective. I take it you'll be flying? She waggled her elbows at me. The castle wall would be a perfect place from which to jump. I was beginning to explain that I could not fly without the assistance of swans, when Her Majesty wished me luck and ushered me through the discreet wooden door back into the garden. I think she was wanting her breakfast. I must say she was utterly charming, although the happy coincidence of her forbear and mine having been acquainted made smoother what might otherwise have been an awkward meeting. Obviously, if I leapt from the castle wall, I would plunge to my death. I therefore decided to adapt a method of gaining height first used by the French philosopher and soldier Cyrano de Bergerac, as explained in his intriguing little book A Voyage to the Moon. First, I went and rolled myself up and down the lawn, liberally coating every square inch of my feathers in the thick dew which still lay there. Then I scaled the outer wall of the round tower, no easy task when I was so heavily weighed down by the dew, and positioned myself on the rampart with my arms outstretched. For a while nothing happened, except that I was spotted by a soldier who threatened to shoot me if I did not come down at once. Fortunately. Just then the sun's rays strengthened enough to begin to draw the moisture on my feathers skyward, and in so doing to lift me into the air. The soldier opened fire, and with bullets whizzing about me I rose majestically towards the sun until I was out of range. I thus proved Serrano, whom many have derided as a deluded fantasist, 
to be a man well ahead of his time. I'm surprised that the aviation industry, which uses such vast quantities of expensive and polluting fuel to power jet engines, has not researched how to make Serrano's system applicable to aeroplanes. It has one disadvantage, however, which is that the rapidity of ascent is determined by the rate of absorption of the dew by the heat of the sun. That is to say, the wetter one's feathers, the higher one climbs, but without any means of controlling one's speed. On this occasion, I actually left the Earth's atmosphere and even made a swift orbit of the moon. I had a good look at its surface, which children believe is made of cheese. It actually consists mainly of yellow chalk. I was dismayed by the amount of litter left behind by successive lunar expeditions. I saw a lot of fast food containers, an old mattress, and even a bicycle discarded among the moon's craters, sites which may be despaired of humanity's disregard for the environment. However, I did not, could not, linger, as I was blown back towards Earth by a fierce meteorite dust storm. I not only escaped any serious injury from the meteorite dust, but was even able to gather enough of it on my feathers to protect myself from burns when I re-entered the atmosphere. Being some way south of the equator, I was, by judicious manoeuvring of my wings, able to splash down, to use the technical term, in the waters of Sydney Harbour. I waded ashore, tired but exhilarated by my journey. My feathery apparel aroused little interest, as passers-by assumed I was a member of the cast of Swan Lake, then in rehearsal at the Opera House, and had gone for a refreshing swim. I was therefore not troubled by any awkward questions from police officers or immigration officials, and at the first bank I entered was able to secure an immediate advance of $3,000 on presentation of my passport, which the Queen had personally signed. I bought myself a wide-brimmed hat and other items of clothing, booked into a hotel, ate an enormous dish of steak and chips with a side order of assorted seafood, and went to bed. I was so tired that I slept solidly for four nights and three days. What woke me was a burning smell, and the sound of many smoke alarms, both near and distant. I went to the window and opened the curtains. Such a thick grey pall of smoke hung over the city that the harbour bridge was almost invisible. I dressed quickly and went down to reception, where I was told of the terrible bushfires which had been ablaze for several weeks in many parts of Australia, and were now threatening the very suburbs of Sydney and causing devastation in the Blue Mountains and other beautiful regions. I at once volunteered to help in any way I could. The receptionist told me that her brother ran an animal rescue centre an hour's drive away, handed me the keys to her motorbike and urged me to go there as fast as I could. I set off, riding through ever smokier and hotter conditions. When I arrived I was put to work treating the many injured and traumatised animals including koalas, kangaroos and wallabies, that had been brought to the centre. Some were badly burned and in great pain, others simply terrified. Yet they seemed to recognise that we humans, on this occasion at least, were their friends and not their persecutors. 
I had with me Her Majesty's Factor 90 sun cream, and discovered that a single drop, diluted in a litre of water, made a balm which was wonderfully soothing and healing when applied to the skin and feet of the poor creatures. For several days I worked with the other volunteers, treating many hundreds of animals, although we were unable to save them all. When the bottle of sun cream was empty and I could do no more, I travelled north to the coast of Queensland to rest and recuperate, and it was from there that I embarked on the next stage of my world travels.